ChatGPT is actually a really, really good example. We can use me as a journalist. So I'm looking at ChatGPT and I'm saying, okay, right now ChatGPT cannot write my Wall Street Journal column. Will it be able to in five years? Probably. So what aspect of my job won't it be able to do in five years? And the answer to that is, will the Wall Street Journal allow my column to go out with just ChatGPT writing it in five years? And the answer to that is probably no. But they will still need me to read it and make sure it's accurate, fact check it, edit it. That's still going to be needed. So I better make sure I know how to edit. Welcome to the Disrupted Workforce, where we help courageous professionals explore, expand, and evolve in the future of work. Are you curious to understand how all these disruptions are changing how we work in our careers? Trying to self-assess and build an actionable plan to thrive in the future of work? Looking for research and insights from thought leaders to help you and your organization? Then this is the show for you and you found your tribe. I'm Alex Schwartz. And I'm Nate Thompson. And we are your hosts. Today, we are thrilled to have Alexander Levitt on the show. Alexander, we are big fans of your work and feel like kindred spirits on a similar journey. We're so excited to help you launch your new book, Deep Talent, How to Transform Your Organization and Empower Your Employees Through AI, which comes out on February 28th, 2023, in case any of you are listening to this way in the future. Alexander, you are the founder and CEO of Inspiration at Work, a women-owned futurist consulting business with the goal of preparing organizations and their employees to be competitive and marketable in the future business world. You're also a nationally syndicated columnist for the Wall Street Journal, and you co-anchor the Workplace Report, and you've authored eight books, including the bestsellers They Don't Teach Corporate in College and Humanity Works, Merging People and Technologies for the Future of Work, which we're going to dive into just a little bit as well. Alexander, it is a new era for AI and talent, and in many ways, we are calling this era AI Everywhere. Thank you so much for joining the show and talking to us about your incredible work. It's my pleasure to be here, Alex and Nate. Thanks for having me. All right. We would love to get started by trying to better understand what called you to this work and what is the problem that you're most passionate about bringing awareness to today? Sure. Well, I entered this space a little bit by accident. I started my career in the late 90s. I was one of those high-achieving college students. I went out into the business world, determined to be a VP of PR, actually, by the age of 30. And in my first careers uh, as a PR executive, I pretty much crashed and burned. Uh, My first boss hated me so much, I thought I had killed a relative. I watched people with half my work ethic get promoted ahead of me. (laughs) I was really just very lost. And finally, one of my bosses took pity on me. She was like, Alex, I think you have potential. I think you're a smart girl, but I think you are self-sabotaging. And I think that you could really use some, they called it professional development at that time. I think that to some degree, they still call it that. And I got sent to a course called Dale Carnegie. I don't know if either of you are are familiar with that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, at Dale Carnegie, I actually learned a lot. I learned how to cooperate with people who I didn't have any authority with. I learned how to make a good first impression. And this light bulb went off and I was like, wow, other people should learn 
these things. Everyone should have access to this intelligence about how to be successful as a straight A student who gets tossed into the business world. And I got this idea to write a book about how to succeed in the business world if you were a high achieving student, because these aren't the same things. It isn't the same skill set. And so that was when I got the idea for this first book. They don't teach corporate in college. And I'm, I'm kind of in a unique age group in that there aren't a lot of us at the tail end of Generation X, just very tiny group of people, <laughs> right? I think you guys can sort of yep. relate. And yep. <laughs> uh, there just wasn't a lot out there for us. But the generation just underneath me, just a little bit younger called the Millennials, were coming out and making a huge splash. They didn't really like the way the business world at that time operated either. And so there was a huge market for this type of content. And so that book really unexpectedly did extremely well. This book called They Don't Teach Corporate in College. And all of a sudden, I was getting asked to do all of these talks and be this expert on 20-something workplace politics, which at the time was really funny because I didn't actually know anything. I had just written kind of this first-person experience and done a little bit of research. But over time, just out of necessity, I became an expert on the workplace. <laughs> and all of a sudden, it was this new career. And over time, with the millennials, it was an interesting situation because HR professionals started asking me, okay, well, what do you think the millennials are going to need next? What are they going to do next? And I had no idea, of course, who, who am I? But I started to make what was known as, as a forecast. I started to make an educated guess about what I thought the millennials would do in their careers. So at the time, they were 20-somethings. And that was when I got into the world informally of strategic foresight, which is trying to look around corners, trying to read signals, doing research about the world around you to ascertain what do you think has the biggest potential for disruption? What do you think is most likely to happen given all of the information you have at your disposal? And I started with the millennials. What do I think the millennials are going to need as leaders? What, how do I think they're going to run organizations? And I started doing talks about that and putting together white papers and writing in columns and, and doing all of those associated things. And that was how I, I came to where I am today. Over time, have just learned to pivot, which I think is something that all of us can definitely relate to in, both, yes. uh, in a post-pandemic climate in which uh, machines are taking over uh, many parts of our jobs and we have to figure out where we're going to go next. That's a great story. And thank you for your candor. You know, we all go through moments like that. I certainly went through moments like that where I just was, you know, kind of running into a brick wall and not really knowing what was going on and took a mentor in my life to say, hey, you're good, but you've got some gaps here, Nate. Yep. <laughs> you, need to, <laughs> you need to take a look at this. Um, I would like to dive into your book. So there's a study that with Eightfold and Harris Interactive that surveys 250 business leaders, 913 employees, and there are many great data points. One specifically is business leaders cite talent recruitment development as a top challenge due to talent shortages. And Steve Cadigan recently went on loud on LinkedIn and said, we have hit the talent tipping point. And, and a lot of people are kind of saying that the best version of our talent has arrived and we're now going to start to decline because the future skill, reskill, upskill isn't fast enough. Talent pool is going to shrink. We're in a talent war or a talent crisis. This could be a lot of hype or it could be real, what's your take? Yeah, I mean, I think that we're, we have an interesting problem in that there's labor shortages going on and yet we're, <laughs> we're laying people off 
there seems to be this, and, and what we talk about in the book is that there's this matching problem. There's all of these positions that are open, right? And yet we have people that are, that are out of work. So it's like, how, how do you have those two things exist at the same time? And I think what we're finding is that there are people that are available to work, but we can't figure out how to align the people that are available for work with the skills that we need to, <laughs> we need to fill. And so what we have realized is that what we need to do is broaden the talent pools and kind of rediscover what people can bring to the table. And sometimes I, I think it's not just that we need to rediscover what people can bring to the table in terms of skills, but they need to d- discover what they can bring to the table in terms mm. of skills. I think what is kind of a, a pervasive problem is that everybody is fairly limited in what they think that they can do and what they think their individual potential is. And the reason is, is, is we have looked at careers in a very, very specific way for a long time. We have trained in a particular jurisdiction from the time that we were young, right? We, we went to high school. I think it starts in high school and even middle school. Like, what are you interested in doing when you grow up? Oh, okay. You want to be a doctor? Okay. So you're going to go to college and you're going to be interested in pre-med. You're going to study pre-med. Then you're going to go to medical school. And very early on, you are trained in a very, very specific skill set. And you're, you're pigeonholed at a very early age that that's what you're good at doing. That's what you're going to be good at doing. That's what you're going to be trained in. And you don't look outside that box. So no matter who you are, you are a doctor. That's what you do. And you don't think, okay, well, what else might I be able to do? And it's the same if you're a frontline worker. I mean, one of my very, very favorite stories in the book involves a convenience store worker who just thought, well, I'm a convenience store worker. That's all I can ever be. That's all I know how to be. It never occurred to her that the same skills involved in being a convenience store worker actually could translate very well to some of the healthcare jobs that were available in her state. She just never thought out of the box. We're not trained to think out of the box like that. And so it's nobody's fault, but all of the skills that you might have kind of hidden in plain sight are just things that would never occur to you, would never occur to your employer, would never occur to your manager, would never occur to other employers. And that is where the promise of artificial intelligence comes in because we as human beings just don't think of skills in that way. But artificial intelligence takes data points, billions of data points about careers that people have had through just billions of (laughs) career paths that have occurred and is able to think about skills in different ways. And we talk about specifically skills adjacencies. It's like, okay, well, we know that people who have done algebra are also good at calculus, for example. I mean, that's, a, that's an example that makes some degree of sense, but other examples make less sense, such as you know, people who are good at managing the front of a convenience store might also be good at drawing blood as phlebotomists in a healthcare setting. That is not something you would, a connection you would readily make, but artificial intelligence can make those connections. And that's really where we, we see the exciting promise lie because all of a sudden you see how people can be reskilled in any number of different directions. And all of a sudden you see how a, a population of people can do all sorts of different kinds of jobs. And not only does it open up promise for employers to reskill and upskill people in different ways, but the individual themselves sees of the potential that they can have to move around in different areas. And, and that's what I think is very exciting. So that was a very complex answer to what you asked. No, it's, but. A, it's, a, it's a fantastic answer. And I, 
I love that you're kind of saying that where where AI comes into this is that it's serving in many ways as the imagination for individuals and organizations. Brilliant. It's allowing allowing people to imagine much larger who their talent pool could be and allowing individuals to imagine at a greater scale of who they could become. That's right. That's brilliantly put. I mean, you just <laughs> summarized it way better than I did. <laughs> I also think there's something really interesting there about believing data, the story of data. In that, if a let's just say a random person goes, hey, I think there's some connections that could be made here that this person who's a frontline worker in a convenience store could do these things in healthcare, I would be willing to bet that person would be discredited in a second. Yeah. But if AI says it and goes, no, I've analyzed billions of data points, there's a really strong correlation here. I honestly think that people would be like, oh, that's, that's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> so it's shifting that conversation in a really interesting way. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I remember another story from the book where they, AI saw a correlation between like people who were bartenders that made good salespeople. It's like it, that, that Nate reminds me of how I think that that could be. <laughs> when you hear it off the top of your head, you're like, really? It's something that you yeah. might want to discredit, but it's like, <laughs> no, but we, we saw like, oh gosh, people who it's can talk it up as far to, yes, that's right. Yes. That's right. And you yes. see how it could make sense, but then you're like, huh, I don't know. But I mean, it's, it goes to that. Uh, I hosted a dinner a couple of months ago, and I remember just taking it for granted that we were past the educational pedigree conversation. And I thought we were just going to whip right past that, oh, you need to have this education and that education to be considered for a certain job. And I was very surprised. There was a bunch of senior leaders at the table. They were still stuck on that. They were still stuck on that. No, you really do need to graduate from a particular university to have this job. And the, the cultural inferences around this are still very strong. We are still stuck in that to a pretty substantial degree. So to be able to have the data behind it to say, no, really, you don't need to have that educational pedigree in order to hold this role and be successful in it, I think is, is pretty important still. Well, that's leaving the opinion world to be in a data-driven world, an insight-driven world. And I am so ready for that. So thank you for that. Yes. We talk about that conversation often. Is it going to be pedigree that people are going to be focused on? Is it skills? So then you have the skills versus degrees. Or are we even moving into an era where people are going to be much more concerned with what is your learning style? How do you learn? Demonstrate to me how flexible you've been and what your aptitudes are. You know, it's, it's, it's just fascinating how all of these tectonic plates around talent are just shifting constantly. Your book, in many ways, is bringing to life what you just talked about, this shining a light on talent intelligence, as it were, which is using AI to unearth these insights that we were just talking about. A lot of this is focused at the organizational level, how organizations and the HR function can leverage this. How can individuals get their arms around this? How can individuals begin to use AI to reimagine who they can become in the workplace? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that individuals working with institutions and one of the most exciting examples that, that I learned in, in working with Eightfold on this book is actually uh, with the public sector. And uh, I've done a lot of work with the public sector over the course of my career um, with the U.S. Department of Labor and the U.S. Department of Defense in particular. And 
it's so exciting when you see governments on the cutting edge of this stuff, because it's actually the opposite of what you would expect. You usually see governments behind the curve on these types of things. But Eightfold readily understood that the, the biggest impact that they could make in terms of getting talent intelligence out to the world and, and really making a difference would be to approach state governments and to really try to solve the problem specifically of the skills gap on a major scale by saying, okay, well, we have this issue of unemployment, right? We have state governments that are facing the issue of organizations, big companies wanting to leave certain states because they don't have the people to fill open jobs. And at the same time, we have rising unemployment in those states. <laughs> so you see that matching problem that we talked about a few moments ago. Mm-hmm. And um, what talent intelligence solved was basically both issues. Talent intelligence, when a platform is put, put in in those states, it allowed the companies to say, okay, well, we are going to post these positions and we are going to help the individuals post their profiles to see what jobs that they could potentially be more broadly skilled for. And so the individuals in those cases would have their profiles and they would be able to discover, oh my gosh, I'm not going to just be able to be a convenience store worker. I, thanks to this talent intelligence platform that is available in my state, I now understand that I could do actually all of these other jobs as well. So I mean, it's kind of an unfortunate answer in that you can't just come in off the street, find a talent intelligence platform right now and use it. I mean, you have to be part of a state that has one. So, I mean, that's probably not the answer you were looking for. I mean, right now, you, no, I mean, you, would, have it's, to, it's, you would have to be connected to an institution, I guess is what I'm saying, in order okay. to leverage it right now. I mean, I'm hopeful that in the near future, you would be able to kind of plug in publicly anywhere to get a sense of using this technology, that it would be more democratized everywhere to be able to use it. Um, but right now, let's say you're in the state of New York or the state of Indiana, that would be where you would plug into it and be able to, to really take it full advantage of it. Listen, I think it's great that there's already opportunities. I was concerned that you were going to say it's, it's, it's not yet, and you're saying it's, it's already emerging. So I, yeah. I think this will probably move pretty quickly, especially given the moment that we're in with everything AI taking traction so quickly. So I, I, think, I think the applications are really exciting. Yeah, and of course, if you're in a company that is deploying it, which is happening really, really rapidly as well, then of course, it's at your disposal too. And the, the results in companies of people moving around are just astronomical of, of internal mobility moves, which you just never really see results like that. Um, and it's because mm-hmm. it's, it's possible. And then even... I think even where there are cultural challenges, and when I say cultural challenges, I'm, I'm really referring to managers being reluctant to let their good people go elsewhere. Talent um, hoarding. Let's yeah, call it talent, talent hoarding. hoarding. Very good, Nate. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Um, you still see the percentages go up because managers do see that when they let a good person go, they're also getting good people too. So everybody does tend to benefit from it and you can't argue with results. So yeah. And what I really love about it are, too, the the DEI applications. I think that when organizations deploy talent intelligence for the purpose of helping um, people in underrepresented minority groups get ahead and get access to more opportunities, I think they find that this is is an easier way to do it 
And I think that they, they see that those people get lifted up a little bit more easily. And that's something that we always like to see. That's fantastic. For everyone listening, mobility inside of a corporation is hard. It's hard. Unless you have advocates, unless you have very progressive leaders who want to help you move around to it, it's, there's this philosophy called talent fluidity, where you get talent moving inside of an organization. There are a lot of organizations where that's kind of frowned upon. So having a tool to foster this conversation and reveal these insights and, and create a structure to drive these behaviors is invaluable. I mean, it's in some cases, it's a non-start. It's really hard. And this idea of talent hoarding, if you've never heard of it, just a quick definition is when a leader hangs on to talent, even though that talent could add value, tremendous value to another part of the organization, a leader will keep that talent, talented person for themselves. And it's not okay and it shouldn't be happening, but rest assured it happens every day. <laughs> so yep. um, let's ask about this data. So artificial intelligence and machine learning are fundamentally required data to do with it, to do what it does. It's invaluable. And you have to have good data, clean data, right? And so accessible data. So one of the things that's interesting about this is we did a little homework on how good is the data outside? If you're scraping billions of records, right? How good is the data outside? And it's a mixed bag in that when we know it's early, we're huge fans of what's going on, but we also looked at almost all recruiters, 94% of recruiters use LinkedIn, right? And you would think if 90% of the jobs put out there are for LinkedIn jobs to be filled by LinkedIn, then everybody's got to have a LinkedIn profile, right? But when you start to look at the LinkedIn data, there's a lot of people who just don't have a LinkedIn profile. In fact, 1% of LinkedIn users are between the ages of 25 and 34. About 25% of adults in the United States use LinkedIn. And on LinkedIn, 75% of LinkedIn users, roughly, are outside of the United States. And so my question to you by surfacing this data is, it sounds like it's going to be hard for a while until you can get more people on LinkedIn and other social media apps and sort of shift the conversation toward surfacing that data, that it's going to be a data problem, right? Yeah, no, I mean, I think so. The Definitely AI is only as good as the, the data that it has access to. And we, I mean, I know that Aidfold has told for example, organizations that they're working with, like you can't just give us your data. For example, like if we are building a talent intelligence platform just based on your data, like it's like developing it in a vacuum. (laughs) I mean, it's just like an echo chamber, right? Because some organizations ask for that, right? They're like, well, just base it on our data. It's like, well, that's not going to be very helpful. (laughs) It's not Um, not enough. (laughs) Right. So, I mean, and it does need very, very large volume of data and the more diverse the data, the better it is. And of course there's data in other countries that isn't even available to be scraped because it's locked down for for various reasons. So I mean I think yeah. that it's a valid concern. I think another valid concern is that any technology is built with bias because it's built by a certain type of person. <laughs> I mean, let's face it, that AI technologies are built by a very narrow population of human beings, you know, specifically um, Asian and Caucasian men between the ages of 25 and 35, by and large. I mean, that that in and of itself is a problem that everyone is trying to grapple with right now. <laughs> I mean, is there a solution to that? Not necessarily. So there, there are definitely limitations 
to this, and this goes into a whole other conversation about what are the limitations of AI, what yeah. guardrails do we need to put around the usage of AI and why we need to have proper human oversight and why we need to take to some degree the decisions and the recommendations that we're getting from AI, not with a grain of salt, but we do need to take it as a tool and not kind of like the be all end all of knowledge and insight <laughs> because yeah. we do have to recognize that there are these limitations. So I think it's a valid yeah. point. Um, will the data get better? Of course. Will the technology get better? Of course. But is it going to be perfect now? Yeah, we're huge fans of it. And we want to say that out loud right now to say this has the best potential we've seen in our lifetimes to shift the talent conversation. We need this tool, but it is going to take a lot of refinement. And Alex and I were bantering about this as we were researching the book, reading the book and talking about you were saying, eventually there's going to be a whole body of work around how did you train your model can we certify your model? Is this a best practice? Should other people be considering this? Or is the model not quite right? Do we, you know, is this data half-baked? Is, and what are the implications? Like that's a whole world the, the that public could... and private sector implications for regulation are just staggering at it, this moment. It is. It's AI. so fun yeah. to be on the cutting edge of this and that you could just put it out there and no one's going to... I'm actually writing a column for the Wall Street Journal about it's advising HR pros. It's like, you know, you're, you're liable for this. Like the vendor who's giving it to you, they're not liable. If you put something out and your AI does something stupid, you're going to get in trouble. Like, yeah. you are. <laughs> yeah. Like, nobody else. So that happened in Houston. It's not yeah. exactly the same thing, but I think yeah. it's a good story. There's a, a Houston teachers union that ended up filing a lawsuit against a tool it was an evaluation tool. It was using an algorithm and it was a black box. No one knew how it was coming up with its decisions. But some of the recommendations were to fire teachers who had one teacher of the year. And so the, the teachers union people started getting together going, okay, uh -huh. hold on. <laughs> and this is not to say it's not worth pursuing. It's just to say we're all being very thoughtful about let's do this in a healthy way and let's not be afraid of having the difficult conversation around this needs to be tweaked. It needs to be refined and we need to have some ethical conversations about this, et cetera. And humans need to be overseeing it. I mean, just a very, yeah. a very basic example. So I get pitched for my Wall Street Journal column by PR people. And there's this very, in, in my mind, <laughs> unfounded excitement around chat GPT, and, which mm. to me is not a leap. It's just another chatbot. I don't really see how it's different, frankly. Um, but I, I'm getting pitched with chat GPT. PR people are attaching their emails and names and companies to the chat GPT pitch, but they're not reading the chat GPT pitch before they're sending it. Mm. And the pitches, <laughs> the pitches don't make any sense. They don't wow. make any sense. And I'm reading this and I'm like, you just attached your name and your company to this thing that you're not reading. And it's at the very, it's a very basic example of the lack of oversight. Like you're, you're, you are not ruining, I mean, I don't want to be overdramatic here, but you're denting your reputation because you yeah. are not overseeing what this chatbot is doing on your behalf. And this pitch is awful. It doesn't make any sense. People are just racing, racing, racing to use this and claim the power and claim the efficiency of it. Mm -hmm. And I love that you brought this up. And 
there's a journalist, Kevin Roos, at the, the New York Times, and he was interacting with Bing's chat GPT model. And there was recently a story and it was saying, you know, I want to do love with you and saying that he wasn't interested in his wife. I mean, just really, really wild stuff. And you see these examples and it's very clear that, you know, these 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 bots can go off the rails very quickly. Yeah. And that this widespread adoption, it's sort of, I mean, obviously, you know, there's all of these things are having such a big moment and it is very exciting. But at the same time, there's so many instances that just say, look, this stuff is not fully baked yet. No, nope. Yeah. And, and so, that's okay. It's I mean, okay. That's, yeah, it's, it's okay. Yeah. It's just, it's, it goes back to what we were saying that we are in the infant stages of this and, and we have to understand that. And I think that oversight is just so important. I'm very fond of saying, I mean, I say it in my book, Humanity Works. I think I say it in this book too, that whenever you insert a, a machine into a traditionally human-driven process, you need a person who's going to figure out where it goes, who's going to manage it, fix it when it breaks, figure out how to redeploy it to explain its role to a decision maker. I mean, that's a lot of people that really should be involved. And so it doesn't replace human jobs. If anything, it amplifies the human role in the process. That's a really good segue into the next question we wanted to ask you, which is that in your book, you identify this need to redesign jobs to align with digital transformation. And that is part and parcel to why we created the disrupted workforce. And you say in the book, quote, quite simply, we now live in a world of talent limits. Every company, regardless of industry, has become a talent business and the pace of change is going faster every day. Skills you learned two years ago are already becoming obsolete and the job or title description you love seems to be changing every quarter, end quote. So where do you see the biggest challenges and opportunities for reimagining talent? I think that, again, that's that static career path or career description that we all thought, I mean, particularly for those of us who are a little bit older, where we kind of thought we would be doing the same job and having the same skill set that we maybe would just tweak a little bit over time. We don't live in that world anymore where that would be enough. We have to live in a world where we are kind of always looking around to see what are we going to need to do next. And I think that that's maybe easier for, I mean, not to, to make generalizations, I think that's possibly a little bit easier for people who are younger because they've always had to do things that way. But really, I think that the model of machines taking over our jobs, it doesn't happen maybe as radically as we might have feared in years past. I think it's a, it's a good thing for us to kind of train ourselves to kind of looking behind us to see if machines are catching up simply because that is in a way what's happening, whether it's a machine or simply the world is changing, period. I think it's, it's basically a good, a good thing for all of us to be doing is kind of looking over our shoulders with respect to our careers. I mean, everybody needs to be thinking about what are the next skills that are going to be necessary because what's going to be obsolete. And it's not that you need to make massive changes all the time, but I mean, ChatGPT is actually a really, really good example. Uh, you can use me as a journalist, right? So I'm looking at ChatGPT and I'm saying, okay, right now ChatGPT cannot write my Wall Street Journal column. Will it be able to in five years? Probably. So what aspect of my job 
won't it be able to do in five years? And the answer to that is, will the Wall Street Journal allow my column to go out with just ChatGPT writing it in five years? And the answer to that is probably no. But they will still need me to read it and make sure it's accurate, fact check it, edit it. That's still going to be needed. I will still be needed for that. So I better make sure I know how to edit. Right now, I, I have an editor. That's two people's jobs right now. Yeah. It may go down in the next five years. In fact, it probably will go down to one person's job. So that's the kind of thing everyone needs to be doing. You know, we have to all be doing that and looking kind of over our shoulders and saying, not necessarily you need to overhaul your entire career, but you need to be coming as broadly skilled as possible so that whether it's a machine that's going to be taking things over or you need to think about if there were disruption, like where can I be as broadly skilled as possible so that I actually become indispensable in my organization? Um, and the layoff yeah. conversation is, is actually a whole other conversation we could have. But if your organization were to have a layoff and they were going to need to redeploy people or lay them off, where could you be as skilled as possible so that you could play many different roles within an organization? Because the future, going back to the very original question you had, in terms of redesigning jobs, jobs are going to be components. It's not going to be like one person doing one specific job. It's going to be, okay, well, we have different kind of micro jobs within an organization where we could deploy you into job A, but we could also deploy you into job B or C or D or E. And the more of those letter jobs that you could do, the more indispensable you're going to be. Yeah, that's the world I see too. Yeah. Everything you just said is music to our ears. I yes, figured. you guys that. are the disrupted workforce. So yeah, we, we are. <laughs> and, and but but that spirit of 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 self assessment and inquisition and being able to look at technology and say, as you did, so precisely, what does it do now? What's it going to do in five years? What does this mean for me? Where do I need to lift up or reskill? or hone my skills and how does this, you know, all come together and then look and, and then encouraging everybody else to do the same, even though, as you said, we're all exhausted. Yeah. We have to do this. Yeah. Alexandra, what you just modeled for the audience and I want to, for everyone, that is a beautiful pearl of wisdom. When a professional who's very good at what they do can just stop and go, I'm going to be realistic about what's going on. I can't outpace this algorithm. This piece of technology is going to start doing more and more of my work. What should I do now? And modeling that in a way that everybody can follow that thinking. And then candidly, you've already pivoted in your life. A long time ago, you learned the pivot. So this isn't net new for you. You're just going to use your strategic foresight and pivot again yep. and pivot again and pivot again, right? Or I'm going to try. <laughs> we'll see how that works. <laughs> I, I have one really quick add-on question. So we've yeah. seen a lot of statistics that say, you know, the next generation coming to the workforce could have as many as 13 to 16 careers. Do you think that's accurate? What do you think about the data around the number of careers that future generations are going to have based on how fast everything is moving? Because that's, this pace of change, this rate of change is something that we are continue to be amazed by and continue to believe as a, a steady state of change that we're all going to have to get used to? It's a good question, Alex. I, I think it goes back to what you were saying about redesigning jobs. In our definition of career, right, we think of a career as being like a journalist 
or a doctor. I don't think it's going to be that radical. Like you go from being a journalist to a doctor to being an IT project manager to being, I, I don't think somebody will have 13 of those switches. But what I do see is someone being in, an, in one organization and having 13 different roles in that organization. That is something that I absolutely mm. think will come to fruition. I think it's already starting. And, and this is what we mean when we say that people will be as broadly skilled within an organization as possible. That those alphabet things that I just kind of made up off the cuff, like having job A and then having job C and then D and then E, that I think will absolutely happen. You won't be pigeonholed in, oh, I worked in IT for my whole you know, tenure in an organization. You'll work in IT. Then you'll work in marketing. Then you'll work in um, procurement. Then you'll work. I mean, that is absolutely going to happen for sure. And if people were smart, this is this is the message. Start doing that now. You want to be as broadly skilled as possible, so that when the time comes for redeployment, you can easily pivot into something else because your current function could become vulnerable. We just never know what's going to happen next. But there were some examples of private sector organizations that instead of laying people off, they took the opportunity to redeploy their people into other functions so that they could keep them. And those were the people who did better in the end. I mean, my absolute favorite example of this, I mean, I feel bad that it's such a good example because it's caused so much suffering, but the airline industry. The airline industry was very short-sighted. They, they, when air travel ground to a halt for what was it, like six months, they, they laid all those people off. Three years later, they are still trying to get those people back. And all of the problems that they have had short of those first six months have been the direct result of all those people they fired. And it's just been awful. And it's like if they could have only figured out what to do with those people for six months, they would have saved themselves a world of hurt. And it's like, I just hope that everybody can learn from seeing that happen. If they could have reskilled those people and to do something else temporarily and we're just we're seeing the exact same thing happen now with all these layoffs. The recession hasn't even happened yet. Like we're not even in a recession. And we're seeing all these yep. companies lay people off. It's like, don't lay them off, reskill them, redeploy them, and then hold on to them because Thank you. Yeah. Well, so it's it's this paradigm shift. This old idea of talent is talent is a commodity. I'm powerful. I'll grab you when I need you and I'll toss you out when I don't. Just ask <laughs> yeah. the airlines. And no, you won't. Yeah, no, you won't. And so now there's this shift that's happening on multiple levels where there isn't as much talent. The skills are changing rapidly. So you're having a really hard time getting the sophistication of the talent that you need. And then there's also this narrative, Alex likes to call it, people are, are speaking with their feet where yep. they're going, hey, I don't like the way I'm being treated anymore. This doesn't feel very good. So there's this um, kind of cocktail spinning around hey, you're not going to be able to treat people like that anymore, especially if you want to be uh, a top place, you know, where you can get access to the best talent in the world and that sort of thing. So we're really excited for that evolution. We see this as a paradigm shift and an evolution. You've got to start treating people differently. And then the tools like artificial intelligence are going to help you understand that and hopefully get ahead of it before you make really bad decisions like casting a bunch of really talented people to the wind. Yeah. Can I ask you about this culture thing? Just because we're right here and I want to grab it. Yeah. How we're treating people. There's a a shift that's happening and you wrote in the book or research that you cited from O.C. Tanner that talks about a paradigm shift of I go to the office to work to 
I go to the office to physically connect and build community. This is a massive shift. Yep. Um, I've been in the workplace for decades and it's never been that kind of a conversation before. But it's also around this thing about um, flexible work, talent fluidity, hybrid work, remote first, et cetera. So talk to us about this considerable mindset shift of I'm going to a physical place as needed to have connection and community. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're seeing that the, the value proposition of the physical office has completely changed. And, I, and actually, I think it's, it's nice because it, it does finally serve, I think, a purpose as opposed to people going to the office because they feel like they have to. And I think people, it, it, it really has helped people find more work more meaningful in general. And I think that at the beginning, it seemed like organizations were being rather heavy-handed about it, that they were putting mandates in place that weren't necessarily based on having, you know, these communications and conversations with their workforces about what worked best for people. But then I think they realized fairly quickly, um, and this is a testament to organizations and their ability to listen, they realized that that wasn't working well and that people were not responding well. And so they did change their approach. I don't know if you guys noticed this as well, but they they did kind of change their approach and say, okay, we're, we understand, we, we hear you. And they did sort of shift and it does seem like they backpedaled a little bit to having these, you know, this co-creation of norms is kind of what I call it, where let's figure out by having dialogue what's going to work best for this group of people or that group of people. And it sort of seems like the, the results are very customized according to what is going to work for everyone. And to me, it really does seem like the arrangements that are coming out are much more flexible, much more attuned to what's going to be best for the, the workforce in general and what work needs to be accomplished and how it's going to be best accomplished. I think there's nothing better for mental health than kind of seeing people face-to-face and really getting a sense of how people are doing and, and building relationships that help to get work done more effectively and productively and efficiently. And I think it's accomplishing that to some degree. So that's my thoughts. What, what are your thoughts? What are you guys hearing? We've been working remotely together for almost three years and we just spent our first full week together. And it was, it was, it was fantastic. I, I think, you know, overall, our sense has always been that being in the office for the right reasons at the right times is really, really important. For building culture, for building connection, for building a sense of belonging. I think we are acutely aware of the challenges that we're seeing at a global level with loneliness and isolation, which only were exacerbated throughout the pandemic and giving people an opportunity to see one another in person and get to know one another in a deeper way. I think there's a younger generation coming up that doesn't necessarily understand or value being in the office in the same way. And I think that's a problem. And whether it's that mentors haven't made themselves available enough or that office hours are not, you know, what they should be. I mean, we had a, uh, a chat with, uh, with Sherry Turkle last year, I had a really, really fun conversation with her. And she was saying, look, you know, I'm at MIT and I have my office hours and people keep saying, can I, can I zoom? Can I do a phone call? And she says, look, I'm I'm supposed to be writing your recommendation. Don't you want to meet with me? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Seriously. So, yeah. So, so some of this stuff is generational, but some of it really is um 
I don't know. We, 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 we talk a lot about the four day work week and I don't, I don't want to be over long on, on these points or get to a place of too much conjecture, but I think finding that right balance between hybrid and in the office is the sweet spot. And I think companies need to really make sure to your point and, you know, to, to honor the, the blog that you just wrote about getting people to come into the office that that time needs to be special. That time needs to be sacred. It needs to be purposeful. So there is, um, it's incumbent upon employers to to make sure that the the draw that the the carrot that they're dangling to be in the office is is the right one that matches the values and the needs of the employees who are still you know maybe pushing for a little more Zoom time. Exactly. Yeah, it's going to take time. It's just like AI. In in the AI and talent intelligence isn't quite there yet. It's going to take some time. In the same way, this new version of culture, this new version of talent fluidity and and figuring out what's right for you, customization. Like think of how we buy on Amazon, it's hyper-customized. Wouldn't it be nice if in our work, we could just have some customization with <laughs> what we need for ourselves in our lives? Um, and I w- I'll represent one small side of that conversation that I think is really, really important is that I used to drive 780 hours a year to commute to work. And now I get to be present and loving with my family, my wife and kids, with my pets in a way that I just never could. And, and that's irreplaceable. Yep. I don't care who you are. Like that quality of life of I get to be a different kind of a dad and husband because I have this flexibility. I love my work. Don't worry. I'm going to come to work and do great work. That's table stakes. Yep. But man, to give me the space to be a better human being, that means a lot to me. And I, I am not going to be giving that up. <laughs> so... Yeah. I mean, I think everybody has a better quality of life now or not. I mean, I shouldn't say everybody, but I think most, most people do. I think it was a gift. Yeah. Can we talk about the workplace report? Because it's this awesome piece that you do. You just released a piece on the office and it's hyper relevant of what we're talking about right now. Is the office going to come back? And then you talk a lot about This idea of a network of places. And I just want to share this with everyone. This network is now not just that you go to the corporate headquarters, but it could be that you are at your house, you're at the office, you're at uh, WeWork, you're at a client site, you're at a hotel, and that more and more leaders are kind of saying, oh, we have to think of this as a network. All of these places are our place. All of these places are our places. Yeah. That's a, that's a novel idea. And then on top of that, there's this need possibly for a talent intelligence at the where are my people level. Like, where's everybody at out in this network of places? And how are we building culture? And where's it working? And where's it not working? So do you feel like this is a natural progression for talent intelligence into helping foster culture across the network? Yeah. I mean, I think that. I mean, what, first of all, in terms of the, the, what rises a team, I mean, one thing that I've been talking about for years is the rise of the short-term distributed team, a, a phrase that I use in, in my book, Humanity Works, that I still think is appropriate is called rapid talent assembly or the, the idea of assembling a team for the express purpose of accomplishing a given business objective. So you, you assemble a team for a, a specific purpose. And you can assemble that team from your pool of contractors, from full-time employees, from part-time employees, from 
people that might be from other groups or departments and that maybe that group never worked together before, but you've got experts from different areas. They come together, they work on the project, they solve the problem, the team disbands, and then maybe that team works together again or maybe they never do. Maybe they work together in person. Maybe they never meet in person. Maybe they only work together online. And when they're working together in person, maybe they work together at the corporate headquarters. Maybe they work in a conference room in some location that has nothing to do with corporate headquarters. And so I think we're going to see more of these arrangements. And so like maybe they'll take place um, in the metaverse. (laughs) Like, I mean, Mm. I think that that's a a potential (laughs) place uh, when we talk about network of places. But I think that that's probably the future of of the team. And um, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of excited. I mean, if you think about the potential for learning from other people and your ability to be exposed to different types of people doing different types of things, I actually think is, is a pretty exciting proposition because it is one thing to be able to know the same people and grow relationships with them. I think that that's valuable and I don't want to discount that. But I also think that it's exciting to to be exposed to different people, different cultures, different ways of doing things, different perspectives. And so I think that workplace culture is going to have to grow and expand to accommodate these types of arrangements. And of course, talent intelligence can help in pairing individuals together to see like who would work better together, you know, where might skills adjacencies um, make sense in terms of not just what individuals can do and the potential they have to do different types of jobs, but where could individuals work better in teams and what teams might be sensibly structured together. I mean, it doesn't, to my knowledge, do that yet, but that's something that I could see it it's doing an, in the future. Yeah, it's an easy stretch to just add into their cultural intelligence right into the talent intelligence. Yep, exactly. So it's an application that I could see happening for sure. Alexander, this has been absolutely fantastic. You've given us so much to 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 to, to noodle on here and brought such incredible insight. And uh, your work, I think, is really going to help a lot of people get their arms around how to handle this this skills gap and this talent problem in a, in a much more creative way. Not just with AI, but with you know some of the other solutions that you were talking about today and some of the introspection you were talking about today. Um, All of that said, we would love to bring you into a speed round to Mm -hmm. wrap things up. And so we'd love to ask you to try to answer these questions. Five questions in 60 seconds or less, if you're able to. Okay. As we said earlier, we absolutely love your background in organizational psychology and strategic foresight. Tell us why strategic foresight is so important now across the board for people to understand. Well, strategic foresight is uh, sometimes people get uh, intimidated by the term futurist and being a futurist really just means trying to make an educated guess about what has the greatest potential for disruption based on the signals that you're getting looking around corners. And I think it's more important than it it ever has been in the past because COVID-19 is not going to be the last disruption. In fact, we're going to see increasing numbers of disruptions as we proceed further through the 21st century. And if COVID has taught us anything, it's that we have to be adaptable. We have to to keep on going. And the people that are the most adaptable are going to be the ones that are not only most successful, but most resilient and best able to, to cope effectively and in a way that makes us happiest and most fulfilled. 
So I, I think that the only thing that we can do is be prepared and strategic foresight helps us do that. There's no way to, to really prevent disruption from happening, but in being prepared, we can hopefully get through it with a little bit more sanity intact. I love that. Tell us about this workplace intelligence report, uh, or it's a project. It, and is this related to the Josh Burson workplace intelligence project? Are you part of that or is it a different thing? What is this? Yeah, so Eightfold um, partnered with Josh Burson, who's a leading HR analyst, and he has a wonderful team. And essentially what they're doing is uh, looking at different industries to determine what skills those industries are going to need in the future using talent intelligence and how those industries can be prepared to, to gain those skills, how people can be trained properly in those skills, and, and to really help those industries remain healthy as they you know, proceed through the 21st century so that the industries don't necessarily have to experience talent shortages. I mean, really, it's in a way, it's using strategic foresight to ensure that those industries remain in, in a good place and that organizations that are in those industries can use that intelligence to, to stay afloat and to actually be successful and grow properly. So I think it's actually a wonderful, wonderful tool for the industries that are being explored um, in, as part of that project. Any chance they're giving it away or do you have to be part of a, a membership to get access to that? So some of them are free. And in fact, if you read the book, Deep Talent, like we've got some examples of different uh, industries that are being profiled. But um, yeah, they, they have a different, um, different membership tiers. But the Josh okay. Burson website in general is a fantastic resource for your listeners. I mean, there's so much publicly available um, on his website that is just so great, not just for talent intelligence, but for anyone who's interested in the talent space. I mean, he's got incredible resources on there. So I highly recommend it. Thank you. So in spite of our name, The Disrupted Workforce, we are absolutely optimists. <laughs> we do see a <laughs> lot too. of optimism in, in all of these disruptions. And we know you are as well. And that's why we would love to ask you, what are you most optimistic about as we enter 2023? I'm optimistic too. I think there's never been a better time to be at work. And we we were talking about before that there is so much more flexibility. There is so much more of an opportunity to, to do work that is meaningful to you, to discover new things and new skills that you might be good at that you never would have had the opportunity to pursue before, to pursue your potential that you might not have even known was available, uh, that you might not have ever thought about. Uh, I mean, these are things that artificial intelligence can help us discover and it's not just something that's available to people who are highly educated either. Anyone can take advantage of this technology. And that's what makes it so exciting to me. I feel like um, Eightfold likes to call it like the right career for everyone in the world. And I, I really do think it has that potential. And that's what makes it it's so cool. And I'm so glad to, to even have a part in getting the, the message out. And thank you to both of you for playing a part in that as well. Um, but really, I think it's of all of the, the centuries of work that humans have <laughs> have partaken in, I mean, this is this is really one of the best. So personally, I'm I'm thrilled with 2023, and I think it's only getting better from here. That's awesome, Alexandra. Thank you for being such a powerful voice in this conversation, helping people, helping at scale get this message out, and and not only for HR you know, leaders and, and CEOs, CXOs, hey, this is a better way to think about talent, start to use these powerful tools, but also for all the people to go, hey, I need to 
move forward. I need to pivot. I need to think about my career differently going forward. And here's another way that I can do that. So we're super excited to amplify your message, get to help you launch this book and get this out there so that more and more people can find themselves on a better side of this conversation. Yeah, well, thank you both too. It's been really fun. I appreciate it. I also want to say that as much as your first boss sucked and was horrible, <laughs> I, I also want to thank that person for being the catalyst for pushing you to be so amazing and doing all this incredible work. Oh man, it's, it's reach out Kristen. to that person. Uh, yeah, I, I always I always say pain pain is my greatest teacher. It really is. Yeah. It really is. Where can people find you, Alexander? Where's the best place for people to connect with you to learn more about your work? Um. People can find me at alexandralevitt.com, at uh, alevitt on Twitter, and of course, LinkedIn as well. Um, would love to hear from people, hear what you think of the book, and any feedback you have. Just always looking to connect with people and you know, find me anywhere and chat me up. Would love to hear from you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this journey. In a world where attention is scarce and content is abundant, means a lot. To learn more about this episode, go to disruptedwork.com forward slash podcast, where you can find show notes and key details about the episode, our guests, and how to connect with us. Our website also contains additional resources for learning, including our future work mindset model and action plan. The best way you can support the disrupted workforce is to subscribe to our show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To help others thrive in the future work, spread the word by rating and reviewing the podcast and sharing your favorite episodes with the people you care about. Disrupt yourself to unlock your future.